Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV, a weekly show where we have the opportunity to discuss the latest and most important business leadership, technology, and innovation trends across industries. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guest your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV. We'll do our best to answer your questions live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO, founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and ZDNet, and in my humble opinion, one of the best follows on Twitter, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. That's awesome. Hey, welcome as well uh, to my co-host, Bala Ashar. He is the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, but more importantly, one of the top CIO influencers and CMO influencers on many lists, and of course, a massive contributor to the former Huffington Post blog, but now a ZDNet blogger and author himself. So who do we have today? We're talking commerce. We're talking some fun stuff. Who do we have today? Yeah, we're going to be talking about digital commerce, and it's our privilege to have Andreas Reiner, President, CEO, and Director at Pros. Pros is a cloud software company that helps competitive enterprises create a friction list. We're going to learn about that and personalized buying experience for customers. Pros uses dynamic pricing science, AI, and machine learning to help companies price, configure, and sell their products and services with speed, precision, and consistency across all channels. We've been referring to this as an omni-channel environment. Andres joined Pros in 1999. He's held series of increasing responsibilities. Uh, Executive Vice President of Product and Marketing, uh, establishing global footprint and expansion of Pros, Senior Vice President of uh, Product Development and Engineering. I think he's, he's done just about every function at the company and now he's at the, at the helm. You can follow him on Twitter at Andres D, A-N-D-R-E-S-D, R-E-I-N-E-R. Welcome, Andreas, to Disrupt TV. Great to be here. Very exciting. Uh, looking forward to a great event. Thank you, sir. <laughs> hey, thanks for being here. Now, part of the reason you're here, we're, today we're talking about that transformation that's happening in digital commerce. And as you know, um, massive changes, whether it's uh, delivering on levels of personalization that we haven't seen before, getting to different channels, creating immersive experiences. Uh, but underlying this is really a set of new business models. So tell us about e-commerce market trends over the past five years. What should we look ahead on the B2B side of digital commerce? And of course, we'll hint to a little bit of these new business models that require smart products pricing and smart pricing engines? No, that, that's a great question. So let me tell you a little bit. So over, if, if we looked at five years ago, I would say a lot of companies were really focused more on enablement of sales and of the sales process for selling. They were also focused on really creating more of a e-commerce and what I would say is rudimentary e-commerce. So more Very of a catalog experience where, you know, a customer can go and view products, but really wasn't what I would refer to as true digital commerce. What I've seen now, especially in the last five years, is companies are starting to think of uh, e-commerce differently. And I would say e-commerce across our customer base is much more top of mind. And in a way of looking to me for digital commerce is moving e-commerce from being truly a separate channel into digital commerce, which is really about uh, creating a whole new customer buying experience. And, and how do you drive channel fluidity? For example, how do you allow customers to start on the web uh, to be able to configure their own products and have the tools that allow them to find their right solutions to getting a, a market-oriented price that they're, they're willing to pay that's rational all the way through a rep being able to look at that, that particular order in their basket and helping them and guiding them in completing that order or that person being able to close it. So really moving from you know, more of a, a catalog search to, to really powering sales and sales growth, but with a, an eye on, on how are you driving a very simple, intuitive, personalized customer experience. And what's exciting is companies that are thinking about revolutionizing how they're selling and how they're driving that incredible experience with their customers. 
You have uh, a B2B uh, e-commerce solution uh, out of box that's integrated with uh, Salesforce Community Cloud. Um, so when I think about a community and you have advocates and people that are speaking about your, your company and the fact to be, uh, the, the, the opportunity to be able to, to conduct business and purchase in a community, I find that notion to be very powerful. Do you, do you yeah. see companies integrating community and e-commerce in order to create a whole new source of revenue that, yeah. that normally doesn't exist there? And Ray alluded to it as business model innovation, but what better place to conduct e-commerce when you have a group of advocates that are really championing your brand? No. I, I, absolutely. I see a lot, lot of companies are having to think about, you know, when they're selling, obviously we integrate with uh, Salesforce communities, but thinking about how, not only how are their products bought, but what other products actually help customers want to buy their products. And, and I do see a world where it's not just about digital commerce for a company, but also of how are you powering a, a digital commerce marketplace? Right. And how are you allowing companies to really package all of the products and solutions they need in a, in a seamless, intuitive way that's tied to how they're buying it. We're seeing examples in the automotive industry, for example, mm. where companies are bundling a car with insurance and maintenance and service, all of these components as one, and then changing their model to a subscription-based model. I, I think digital gives you a whole new way of thinking about your business and how you're packaging your products, but in then, I think it's about thinking about the customer first and thinking about what makes them want to buy your products. What other products are they also interested in mm. that would even create a better experience end to end? Uh, I would say the visionary companies, we have some in the insurance space that are, are doing very innovative, are rethinking about their products as digital products, not just thinking of their insurance um, or automotive uh, service products, but they're thinking about how they're creating their digital experience in a community to drive a better customer experience and to, to be top of mind with their customers when they're thinking about buying products that apply to them. And I think that's what's exciting. Makes a lot of sense. It does. Yeah, no, this makes a lot of sense. And one of the things that we're seeing when we're building digital business models, right, a lot of it is really the companies, as you're talking about, who are going from products to services. They're trying to make that shift. And that servitization means, hey, instead of selling, you know, a toaster, we're selling toast as a service, right? <laughs> instead of selling it, you know, a jet engine, we're selling flight miles, right? We've got all these things happening, not just B2B to C. We have manufacturers that are bypassing their retailers by going direct to consumer. Now, one part of that is, is something that, that you're, you hinted it on, which is really dynamic pricing. And, and really trying to understand, you know, we see that with surge pricing in Uber, we see that in different typing pricing models for hotel rooms and travel. Um, let's talk about dynamic pricing, where it works, and then where it might seem a little bit offensive. Yeah, so I would tell you, look, uh, dynamic pricing is really about AI that helps to power irrational uh, in in irrational price to the market. If you think about it, one of the challenges in B2B uh, is that historically price has been very opaque, right? And, and sales yes. reps can, can price uh, very, uh, very wide ranges. You may have a 70% fluctuation at a SKU level. And mm. where the market is going, if you think about digital and what happened in B2C, to us, B2B and B2C are, are the same. It's really about business. And in dynamic pricing algorithms, what they're doing is bringing a rational, consistent way to price in the market uh, based on demand patterns and, and based on learnings and taking away the gut feel. Uh, what we know in a, in a world where it's transparent, uh, you have to be rational. It's no longer a, a place where, where you're going to price that list and customers are going to expect for you to, to discount and negotiate. Customers now want to know that they're getting the right price, that if they've done business with you for a decade or more, uh, that every time they don't have to continue to negotiate. Also, you want to make sure that, that dynamic pricing is powering all aspects of your selling motions, from your direct sales to your channel to your e-commerce, and that's rational across all of the channels. 
so that if a customer starts from an e-commerce perspective and calls the rep, they don't get a different price. It is a consistent price. And that the price takes into account what's happening in the market. What are leading indicators? If you're in the food industry, you know, what are commodities doing that affect your price? Uh, hmm. So AI is Actually, you said something that's you yeah. said something that's very interesting, and I, I sort of jump in, and, and it's really about AI. And we've been doing a lot of research around AI. And when we think about AI, one of the attributes, especially on pricing, is it has to be transparent. People have to understand why the pricing mm -hmm. got to that level. And I think you just hit on that, which is an important piece. And they also need to understand that they're getting consistent pricing under market conditions, so right. they understand what that is. And in some cases, people are okay knowing that the gross markup is 15 or 20%. They just need to understand why or what the attributes are. In other cases you know you probably just don't tell people it's, it's demand based we're back to the intransparent well, pricing that we had the opaque pricing we had in the past so well yeah of course uh, people understand look if if you have a rush order uh if there there are market conditions that adapt that you're willing to pay more for those conditions and as long as it's rational every time uh it, it is okay the market expects it but we are living in a world where customers are going to see a price and react to that and decide if they want or not. And it means that consistency is important. Uh, what you cannot have is a price on your, on your e-commerce that's very different than what a salesperson is going to recommend. You want to be consistent across, and you want to make sure you're incorporating rationality into your AI dynamic pricing algorithms, which, which we do in our algorithms and the sophistication. And you're adapting to how is your win rate trending? Are you understanding where you're winning and what is the look to book ratios and that they're continuously learning that th think about it. It's a world where if you have salespeople, you're gathering data points across all of them and learnings from all of them, plus external leading indicators. Uh, sure. That's the beauty of it. Sure. I, you, you know, you, you alluded to the business to business and business to consumer and and almost a blending to a business to person versus business to people. And one of the benefits of AI technologies, machine learning, deep learning is, is this uh, ability to mass personalize at scale. Uh, so we're talking about dynamic pricing. You, you, you also have opportunity detection that's powered by your machine algorithms where you know, you're looking at and analyzing uh, transaction activity. You're looking at buying behavior trends, churning forecasts, clustering algorithms, all these dimensions that you analyze to look at sales opportunities. So let's extend this use of machine and AI. Where do you see digital commerce and digital sales and marketing and pricing uh, maybe five years from now in terms of how we're evolving with use of technologies such as machine learning? Yeah, so, so interesting enough, I think that the algorithms themselves today are much more sophisticated. It's going to continue to evolve, but I think even today, the sophistication that's there is way beyond dynamic pricing into personalization. If you think about it, to drive a great customer experience, it's about knowing about the customer, it's about deep learning. Uh, and it's important, for example, if I buy an iPhone X, you know, it's important to know when I buy it. It's not just important to know that I bought an iPhone, but if I bought it at the launch, it tells something. I'm an early adopter of this particular product. What are the attributes of the product that I bought? Did I buy the top-end iPhone X or did I buy the low-end iPhone X? Uh, all of those and what the algorithms around personalization they're doing is understanding what you buy, when you buy, and what are those attributes about the products that you mm. buy. So that, think about when you go into your uh, e-commerce website, what offers are you distilling down? I think today, many, many organizations put a search and a catalog that's every product they sell. Well, every product doesn't apply to every customer. Right. And we as customers want to, to know that everything about what we like in our preferences is actually included into the offers. Uh, so a lot of our algorithms and where we see AI broader than just pros, where we see AI powering is really the brains of this selling motion, modern selling motion, that's really incorporating my preferences in when I buy things. So that you're actually making the recommendations. You talked about opportunity detection. What it does is it recommends to either a sales or an end customer through e-commerce. These are the products that we think you should be buying at this point in time. Mm -hmm. 
So say, for example, if you're a, a automotive parts distributor uh, and we know seasonal parts for the winter, maybe winter tires, antifreeze, so on, that we're making those recommendations, not in the summer, because if we look at a broad market basket analysis, it tells you you bought them, but we're making them when you actually buy them for that time period to be prepared. And we're facilitating your buying. So a lot of our, our AI is really, how do we make this where we're distilling really what's important to you as a customer and what we think you should be buying based on your preferences and like customers' preferences. Uh, but at the end, it's about simplicity. It's how do I show you things that you connect with and you say, yeah, this is what I like. The beauty of where this is evolving in some of our new capabilities that, that we're innovating a lot is incorporating chatbot technology. Yeah. We're also incorporating uh, ways that we can actually ask for your feedback on, on options and getting you to do thumbs up, thumbs down. So how do we incorporate also your feedback back into the algorithm? How do we get it to learn not just by what you buy, but you giving it feedback through a gamification process so that you're actually training the algorithm on what you like so the offers become more and more intuitive over time. That's, that's perfect. So yeah. expanding contextual intelligence through sentiment analysis, tone, explicit feedback, and constantly iteratively creating an algorithm that really knows the customer uh, or the stakeholder. Yeah, no, and, it, and it's exciting because of the amount of data that we can process and think about the future social listening and thinking about the trends of what people like. Those yeah. signals, if you think about the algorithm can take signals from any level. And, and the beauty of this is that over time you can incorporate new, new signals. So you can ask a, a particular end customer for their social handle and things they like and be able to incorporate it. But the importance of this is understanding how you're using that data to drive it better uh, in customer experience and making every interaction more personal uh, and knowing that you're learning from every interaction. So you're not recommending the, the wrong products yeah. uh, to this particular customer. Makes sense. Yeah, and we, we see that a lot, right? I mean, we think that it's important when you're delivering on mass personalization at scale to have the context, which are all the attributes that you're talking about, um, have the choices which create the demand signals, sometimes more important than just liking or not liking. What did you actually do and purchase? Or what transactions or actions have you taken? And really uh, anticipatory analytics by making a guess as to what choices people are going to take and, and understanding why. So definitely big pieces that are happening on, on the commerce side. Um, there's a tougher part here, which is really about helping organizations transform business models. And I think that's much harder than, than before. Uh, my question to you is, what do you do to help customers get set in the right mindset? Because they all jump in and say, oh, we're doing digital. They get excited that they have a channel up and running, but the, the business model isn't there. Yeah, it's getting them to think long term. I think the challenge with change is that it involves aspects of the organization, people, organizational structure, compensation, and getting them to think that this is a journey. That it's not a light switch that all of a sudden now you're in a modern commerce world and you've enabled everything. And it's getting them to think of how you're bringing their maturity level. So for example, at the beginning, you may power e-commerce with dynamic pricing because if you powered e-commerce with list prices, nobody's gonna buy. Uh, so that you actually have more market-oriented pricing. Linking sales and e-commerce together to do real channel fluidity incorporating personalization, getting them to rethink of how they're compensating. Uh, one of the big aspects that we try to get companies to think is that e-commerce and digital commerce is supporting sales. It's not a competition to sales. There's too many companies that think I'm gonna create e-commerce as my low cost channel and there's a separate team and, and they're working on this independently and, and whatever gets sold there, the sales rep is not getting. That's not right way. The right way is really e-commerce should power sales, should help sales do more. Um, so getting yes. companies to think of, and, and some of these changes are harder because you're getting them to think of how they're going to compensate, how they're going to organize, and that, that's important. Wow, we're here with insights on digital commerce with Andres Reiner, President, CEO, and Director at Pros. You can follow him on Twitter at Andres D. Reiner, R-E-I-N-E-R. -E Thanks a lot for being on the show today. Thank you, Ray and Bala. Thank very you very much. Nice to be in the show.
pleasure having you. Thank you, sir. Have a great one. You as well. You as well. Ray, this is it's incredibly important. And, and as a former CMO of a B2B company, I really want to advise B2B companies to think about the importance of e-commerce. I'm, I'm amazed how so many B2B companies have yet to really invest in, in e-commerce technologies. And I think it's a, it's a big miss. Uh, and, and, and so it's, it's, it's great insight. And uh, speaking of digital marketing and thought leadership, um, it's our privilege to have James Norwood, EVP CMO at EpiServer, uh, joining us again. And we're gonna, we're gonna talk about the last time James was with us. James has a proven track record of product strategy, sales, marketing, mergers and acquisitions, brand creation and development. He's had almost 27 years plus experience in leadership roles in enterprise software industry. He's held C-level and executive leadership roles in CRM and ERP software companies. He has been on a number of boards and he advises private equity. You can follow James on Twitter at J-L-N-O-R-W-O-O-D. Welcome, James, to Disrupt TV. Hey, Vala. Hey, Ray. Thanks for having me back on. Hey, it looks like we're both actually home. James is the only person I know that actually can compete head on with me on miles uh, traveled. And uh, that's not a good thing. But uh, we, we, tell each other, we tell each other spouses that, uh, you know, that the other guy travels more. Um, so, so, hey, what's new since you were last on the show uh, in September 2016 on episode, oh my God, 33. Can you believe that? That's a long time ago. Yeah, it's, uh, I feel like I've been on a plane the whole time since episode 33. Um, probably circum circumnavigated the globe 12 times like yourself, right? In fact, this week, I just got back from our Asia-Pacific operations. Uh, we've got about 100 folks down in Hanoi in Vietnam, clever people, and uh, we're, we're hoping to uh, increase that by about 50% over the next 12 wow. months. So it's an important place for us. So, uh, yeah, and, you know, 2016 was a breakout year for our company, and uh, we, we completed a, um, you know, several acquisitions to help accelerate our roadmap but 2017 you know, the year we just completed we like to coin that as that sort of a year of organic hyper growth um, where some of those investments in ai and matrix commerce and uh, campaign management event triggering other areas really starting to pay off in terms of uh, helping our customers um, you know get to grips with what we're doing and you know we're fortunate we're in a very buoyant market um, it's great to be in in the digital marketing digital commerce space content management space um, and some of the uh, innovation that's going on uh, that you see in our customers in the areas of customer experiences, uh, it's, it's quite phenomenal. With all this discussion around differentiation and the product now being customer experience for so many companies, certainly the biggest buzzword of last year was artificial intelligence and all the derivative technologies underneath its umbrella. A lot of at Davos, Ray and I did a dozen or so live interviews and Surprisingly, blockchain was mentioned more than AI, uh, which so which 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 is yeah, it was it was it was definitely the number one technology at, at Davos, in my opinion, and Ray can confirm. So, and based on your travel, based on the fact you advise some of the you know the biggest companies in the world, are we seeing real progress in terms of digital transformation aimed? and improving the overall experience of employees, partners, customers, the entire stakeholder community. Yeah, ab absolutely. So, you know, artificial intelligence and blockchain, they, they are the uh, terms de jour, if you will. And it's the job of analysts and good folk like yourselves to, to lead the way in talking about what these things can do. And, and, and that's great. But, um, you know, we, we, we certainly haven't seen the last of digital transformation. In fact, I'd say we're we're in the mainstream adoption phase right now. So I, I think, Ray, when you came to um, give a keynote on digital transformation at our Episerver Ascend customer conference, I think it was 2015, um, I think maybe 25% of the audience at that time was, was actively engaged with um, the topics at hand. But you know, now when I go out and I speak to our customers and engage with them, it, it's more like 50 to 60% are, are actively undergoing digital transformation. And it's not just technology investments, it's disruptive new business models that they're adopting as well um, as they, they try to elevate uh, the, the level of their business. I'll give you a, a really good example. We've been working with a, an Irish book uh, retailer, a little bit like the Republic of Ireland's Barnes and Noble, if you, if, if you will. And you know, 
very similar, living in the shadow of Amazon, very pressured in terms of um, where do we go from here uh, with such uh, a, a, you know, an 800 pound gorilla in the space. And, and they basically altered their entire supply chain model going from centralized warehouses to distributed model and using stores so that people could you know, buy online and collect in store within a matter of hours. And it really elevated their game. And at the same time, they implemented our entire um, digital experience cloud platform. And they, they did that in six months to get, get it up and running before Black Friday. And that included not just our matrix commerce, our content management, but also our artificial intelligence technology. But they were actually able to see a 31% uplift in online sales during the six weeks wow. of the holiday period of last year. So you, you I mean, that's a pretty incredible story for them to not just transform the way that their supply chain works, but also to elevate their, their online experience from, from a customer perspective and see the results in, in group returns. So, yeah, you know, it's um, not just surviving, but, but thriving. So, yes, they're important technologies, but digital transformation, I would say, is it, we're in the mainstream uh, adoption phase right now. Oh, wow, we've been talking about that since like 2010. So it's good to know. I mean, we're, we've, been, we've been banging the drum on AI since 2012, right. uh, 2013. So this, this will be interesting to see how this actually plays out as well. Now, we are also seeing a market that where customer experience is massively fragmented, right? We're seeing like, you know, there's like 48 different owners. They got to love Scott Brinker's little chart on marketing tech, which also drives everyone crazy. I mean, he's got like something like 6,000, 7,000, 8,000 companies in the space, right? Um, but, but there's a piece that ultimately comes down to commerce, right? I mean, and, and the question I have for you is, can CX exist without commerce? Or can commerce exist without CX? Mm. Well, I'll get the other way around yeah. as well. It's an interesting, very interesting question. And, and Clearly, there's a big debate going on in the analyst community around, around that very subject. But I, I, I guess I'd have to say, yes, it can. I mean, if you look at a lot of our customers, they're, they're not commerce customers. They're, they are brand and informational websites or, or apps. They're um, customer service scenarios, you know, mm -hmm. government education, or even just lead, lead generation focused without a conversion um, that, 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 that's transactional. So, um, yes, it can. But... You know, I think when it when you come to define the overall sort of landscape for a digital experience platform that, that would underpin ultimately customer experience, I think I think you you, you would have to make um, commerce, digital commerce, a central tenant of that. I, I don't think it they're mutually exclusive. So you know, it, it can exist without it. Yes, um, there's plenty of CX rich needs to deliver CX without it. But um, at, at us as a vendor, we, we would not see them as mutually exclusive. Our, our platform would, would always uh, include um, content and commerce. Now, sure. probably one of the most intelligent answers on the space I've heard in a while. So the, the debate among analysts is very academic, but the reality of what's happening with clients is, is uh, these are still very, very different areas. So, so very cool. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so, you know, we talk about with our last guest, mass personalization at scale. Uh, you know, we talk about improving the experience by knowing or anticipating what your customers wants are and needs. So, and of course, we're talking about AI algorithms and they're a function of the volume and quality of the input data. So as we talk about input data and large volumes and really personalization, are your clients coming to you and asking for advice regarding GDR, GDPR and, and what the ramifications are in terms of how do you maintain that trust when you're leveraging as much data to create this anticipatory muscle in your business to improve experience? Yeah, <laughs> this, this, is a, this is a really funny one. I mean, it, it's, you know, AI is going crazy. I, I'm, I'm about to leave Instagram because it, it's now refined my results to what it thinks I want so narrowly that I only see pictures of bicycles. And it's like, I, I do have other interests. In <laughs> hey, capture works great. No, <laughs> With Ray and I, it would be food. It's a crazy time, but what's, what's mm -hmm. more crazy is, uh, for me, GDPR is to marketing what Sarbanes-Oxley was to finance. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, um, a recent survey that um, we co-sponsored shows that around uh, what was it about 30 30 percent of organizations are still blissfully unaware of it or didn't believe that it was going to impact them one in three wow 
one hey, is there's a market like, opportunity here. It's like, come on, people, it's 97 days to go here. <laughs> and, um, maybe it's not as big as Y2K. Maybe it's yeah. because it comes from the European Union, uh, which I'm probably soon not to be part of because I'm, you know, British and, and all of that. But, uh, you know, it, in many ways, GDPR and what that's doing is flying in the face of everything we've been trying to do with big data and artificial intelligence. And it, it, it puts those initiatives at real risk, you know, the right to be forgotten, the need mm -hmm. to do that. So companies do need to take it seriously. I mean, EpiServer takes it seriously. We, we appointed a chief information security officer. We appointed a data um, a privacy officer. Um, you know, they were both uh, internal to the company, but they took on those, those new roles. And like many other organizations, because we're both a data processor as well as a data controller, we've had to, you know, run through full ISO 27001 yeah. certification. We had to, um, oh, fine. you know, yeah, privacy shield. We've had, we've, we've had to get completely compliant with GDPR, not just from a product perspective for our customers, but also from a business perspective as well to make sure that we can do that. So businesses have to take this seriously even if they're a us-based you know organization if you're selling you know consider you've got a commerce site if you if you if that site is is available to anyone from the european union then you're affected you know uh, it, it's about whether you're going to hold any of that information so i think companies need to take it seriously they there's plenty of resources out there you know on episerver site we've got a trust center we've got um gdpr um tools to readiness assessments you know microsoft has a great site for this salesforce has a great site you can just go in and type in microsoft you know gdpr and google and you'll get um readiness assessments and toolkits and that type of thing and just take a look at how set your business is and, and in many cases um people are going to be uh, it's going to be a last minute chase chase it down scenario a bit like y2k was <laughs> hey it's only a four percent fine and the european union is really looking for Four percent of bag, revenue. So. I, I we'll see what happens. <laughs> you know, I, I I give you an example here. I I I booked a flight through orbits the other day. I I got to name and shame them on this, but uh, you know, and I they <laughs> I, I said I don't want any marketing emails, but they automatically opted me in, and I started getting marketing emails. So I went up and I did an unsubscribe, and I got an email back from them saying, "We'll we'll it'll take us two months to um to stop these these emails." I'm like, well. You know, if that happens a month from now, you're going to be in big trouble. So it's uh, I, even the big. <laughs> and anyone at Orbit's listening. <laughs> so, 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 hey, well, I, I want to. Do you think? Do you think regulations like this will actually accelerate transformation, digital transformation? Because people will have to really understand, baseline their capabilities, and then yeah. make real investments in order to conform or comply. Yeah. I, you know, well, I, what I do think it will do is I, I think it will accelerate the move to the cloud. There's a lot of, you know, old on-prem software like out there and particularly in financial services and, and other places. And there's been a reticence and a, and a, a concern, but I think many, more and more companies are seeing the cloud as a GDPR safe harbor, if you will. And, and so, yeah, I, I, I think it's going to uh, accelerate cloud adoption where ultimately you are going to be more secure than, than you are. Mm -hmm. uh, trying to look after these these pretty um, you know powerful mandates on your own. Wow. Hey, so related to that, now that you got the data secure and GDPR compliant, uh, how are people delivering on data driven marketing? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I can tell you how we're <laughs> how we're doing it here. I'm not, you know I wear kind of two hats. I'm obviously head of head of strategy here. Um, and the product side of our business, but I'm also a, a chief marketing officer, so I'm, I'm responsible for creating demand. And uh, you know, Epi is a um, is a data driven business. I mean, we, it's not just in marketing across the business. Yeah. We we we've worked really hard over the last three years to be data driven in in, in everything that we do. Um, you know, and, and um, I'm fortunate to have a, a super talented uh, digital marketing team as well. We, we we've gone out and found some really sharp clever people um and and they work tirelessly to um you know to look for ways to outperform our competition because we have to punch above our weight here at epi we our brand is not as well known as some of our erstwhile competitors so we we have to work in the digital marketing realm to uh, make sure that we're putting data to work in the right way and to to get the results you know we're not we're not 
banner bullies and we're not spam artists. That's not what we do. Um, we, work, we work really hard to deliver value um, with every single digital interaction. So the team um, is, yeah, they, they're uber goal driven. They have their weekly kills that they have to get done. We use the, um, the see, think, do, care framework here at Epicerver, which I know a lot, a lot of people do. And we obsess about moving people between those stages and delivering them the right content, the right messages that are going to be valuable to them at each of those stages. And so we look at conversions between between those as opposed to, you know, just, just in the amount of inquiries you have or the amount of marketing qualified leads. We're looking at, you know, at do conversions, high intent conversions, and that's what my team tends to um, obsess with. And, you know, it's, um, it's something that we, from a product perspective, we've also worked hard on. We, we're introducing a new product shortly called Episover Advance, and uh, that, that actually looks at how to apply metadata to uh, content using cognitive service machine uh, technology and then apply algorithms to that to sequence that content and then recommend the content at the right stage, whether that's see, think, do, et cetera. So you're not gonna be shown you know, a detailed video on how to use a product if you're in the early days. You're gonna be shown a Constellation white paper or something like that. So. <laughs> well, Cindy was actually just pointing that in her research in October. She showed 43% of marketers were aware of GDPR, and she's also been spending time on account-based strategies, which we're gonna hear from her uh, in, in a little bit. So, <laughs> Or we can actually take your case though. As you look at how you were managing the, the, the funnel, you mentioned marketing qualified leads. Yeah. You can always reverse engineer based on your revenue targets, how many leads you need based on conversion rates and the different stages. Yeah. Based on the fact that most digital savvy companies like yourself are now using algorithms to gain certain insights that may have not been available to you. Uh, on episode 33, you know, a year and a half ago. <laughs> but are you, are, what, what are some of the trends you're seeing in terms of the marketing funnel? Yeah. Are, there, are, there, are, there, are there certain outcomes that, are, that may surprise digital marketeers once they start using machine algorithms or, you know, advanced analytics to really manage? Yeah. I remember I discovered um, decaying leads simply by the time spent as they would traverse the, let's say the series decision seven stage funnel. And we had to really dig deep to understand the algorithms we were using to score leads, MQLs. Right. And we found that we were just totally doing things the wrong way. <laughs> but, 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 but it took a lot of burning calories to get there. And I suspect today algorithms can give you that insight pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We, at Episerver, we're applying machine learning to that to that very uh, conundrum. It's kind of the age-old issue of you know where the rubber meets the road of of how do you get more more leads to sales, and it it's pretty easy when you get those um, you get those kind of do conversions where someone actually goes onto your website or whatever and says you know I want a demo, give me a price, and it's, you know you, you're pretty much in there. But it's how do you how do you handle you know the sort of high intent side of things, and that, that's an area that we've been working on is how do we access and put that high intent. Um, data to work to pinpoint companies that are in the evaluation stage but may not yet have connected with you in, in any shape or form right. and and that's somewhere we, where we've been applying some um, machine learning we, we want them to look at us but they they may be looking at a competitor for example so uh, and it's important because although our brand is uh, our brand is growing fast we're still as I said we're, we're less well known than others and my, my marketing budget's quite not quite as big as some of those guys. So we, we really do have to spend more time on, on, on the digital there. So I'll give you a, an example to that. And I can't really go into the details because it's our, our secret source at the moment. <laughs> um, breaking news, breaking um, news. But um, what we're doing is we're, we're looking at that, uh, at what people are doing online. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and we're looking at what systems they currently have in place. And then we're, we're enriching that with, um, you know, with, with information from other ABM sources and tribal information from the Salesforce and, and a whole range of inputs. And then we, and then we've, um, we've automated that 
Um, and our job is then to sort of gradually nudge those people towards, um, towards EpiServer so that we can position our, our value proposition. And that might be done through personalized email, it might, it might be social retargeting, or it, it may even be a call from a business development rep. But it, it, it's something we've done for a while, but it was all very manual, which is where you get the you know, stale leads and that type of thing. So we've actually automated it, and um, we, we, we call it the EpiServer Intent Engine. And uh, it's, it's a pretty powerful thing, and it's, it's, it's running those algorithms on all of that, um, you know, firmographic data and everything else we've, we've pulled together. And it's a really effective and modern way to bubble up to a business development rep or a salesperson, these, these high-intent folks that perhaps don't, ne- don't yet know you. And, and it focuses us. Um, it's a modern way of doing account-based marketing that's, um, that, that's, that's really paying off for us. That's awesome. I love the firmographic element of it, the change in management, the health of the stock, the market that they serve, the brand (laughs) propensity. There's so many uh, factors that that, that you uh, take into account to to determine buying signal or intent. And and it's uh, unfortunately, a lot of companies are not thinking um, and and doing the work that they need to do to, to, to not spam their, 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 their customers or prospects. So, so I love that wow. precision hey, marketing that you're doing. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, we're, we're getting, and, and we'll be able to see, talk to Cindy right after this in the next segment as you brings out some of the cool stuff that's happening there. But hey, James, thanks a lot for uh, sharing your uh, insights on where, where commerce is heading, what's going on since the last show, uh, talking a little bit about digital transformation and uh, all the things that are popping up in the marketing and commerce world. Uh, we're here with James Norwood, Executive Vice President and CMO at EpiServer. And uh, you can follow him at JL Norwood when he's actually in the air. So, all right, thanks a lot. Thanks, James. We'll see you at episode 150. <laughs> see it, and see you at EpiServer Ascend. I think yeah. that's uh, coming up in a few that's weeks. Right, so. That's right. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. And what, what an extraordinary uh, digital marketing thought leader. And, uh, you know, you, uh, there was a lot of nuggets he threw out there in those 20 minutes. So uh, as Ray and I recap our conversations, hopefully in upcoming blogs, uh, we'll, we'll try to share some of those nuggets with you again. And uh, it's our privilege to, you know, end the show with having a first ballot Hall of Fame inductee into Disrupt TV. Oh gosh. Hall of Fame. <laughs> Based on our amazing previous, uh, previous uh, guest appearances, we have Cindy Zoe, Constellation Research Vice President, Principal Analyst covering digital marketing transformation and sales effectiveness. So a lot of things we talked about, we're going to recap. Yeah. Uh, Cindy has... Uh, almost 20 years of uh, practitioner experience. She started when she was five uh, in corporate marketing, <laughs> product marketing, product management, Thank sales operations. Uh, her role uh, is to advise Constellation clients on strategies to, uh, to supercharge and lighten up their demand generation, improve revenue contribution, and then also maximize uh, sales productivity. You can follow Cindy on Twitter at C-I-N-D-Y underscore Z-H-O-U. Welcome back, Cindy, to Disrupt TV. Thank you so much, Vala. Hi, Ray. My voice is a little bit strained today, but I'm, uh, uh, hopefully I, I'm coming through okay for this one. Thanks for having me back. Well, hey, you know, one of the things that you've been talking about and, and what's been hot yeah. in the news is the sales tech consolidation that's happening. And yeah. uh, we recently saw uh, SAP pick up Calidus Cloud. What in the world was that about? What was going on and, and why, why are we starting with that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and something I just found really interesting here is that because if you look at the title, the Chief Revenue Officer, CRO, mm. that's one of the fastest growing titles. It's really kind of gotten uh, mass adoption in the mid-level market, uh, sort of the mid-tier companies, and now it's really kind of moving its way up. And so is, is that more than sales? Is that yeah, more than sales? Absolutely. So basically, we think about it before it used to be EVP of sales, chief sales officer, but really it's now not just about let's sell it and dump, right? It's really about how do I create sustainable value with these customers? And so that's why you're looking even at boards. Uh, you know, kind of corporate boards are measuring metrics like, you know, not only customer acquisition costs, but things like customer lifetime value has mm. become a very key metric. And that's really goes to more of a revenue play than just a sales play. And so because of that, I feel that the companies now that are building the CX suites of the future, so to speak, they're really starting to pay attention and focus on what are some of the 
technology and tools that these sales executives really need. And so we kind of look at the, I looked at the history of all this and you look at, you know, uh, what uh, Oracle started off with buying big machines for CPQ and then volume, you know, Salesforce with Steelbrick, so now Salesforce CPQ. Um, you look at Aptis has attracted a bunch of funding, not only from Salesforce, but recently in their last round, I don't know if anyone saw this, it just came about three weeks ago, IBM invested in Aptis's latest round. So you look at you know, what's happening there on that, that kind of uh, CPQ, CLM space. And then now, you know, obviously we had Pros on, who's very deep in that CPQ space, and then SAP making a move into, into this uh, space. So I'm basically saying the sales tech landscape now was the MarTech landscape of a few years ago, where oh, wow. it's hot and lots of interest, and, and rightfully so. Wow, so watch out Scott Brinker, we're now gonna have a super infographic of all the sales tech uh, stack. Uh, so sales performance management, CPQ incentive, uh, uh, all of it. So does the chief revenue officer own sales ops and sales uh, and field sales? And, and, and the second part, are there companies where the CMOs report to chief revenue officers? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, I have been seeing that. I don't necessarily know if I agree with that approach um, that uh, to have CMOs report into CROs. I feel like there's a very different, you know, value proposition as well. But I have been seeing that that there are certain instances of that. But for sure, from a from a technology perspective, it is about bringing these different technologies together because mm -hmm. it really, you know, we we talked about this for a while, and I wrote that account-based strategy report because it really is beyond account-based marketing. Marketing, ABM, we keep hearing about, and it's still hot, by the way, it's still a lot of uh, driving my inquiries and, and briefings, but I'm telling customers to really think beyond that, and you have to incorporate the services element. And right now, I'm actually seeing even sweet deals. It used to be more of, okay, uh, sort of the Salesforce automation led to marketing automation decisions, or vice versa, you know, sales and marketing. Now I'm actually hearing about service-led deals are translating into, okay, now we need to buy MarTech. So yeah. it's, it's really just kind of fascinating that these, uh, these technologies are all converging now. And it's really because to, to put your money where your mouth is, and this, if you say, I put the customer in the center of everything, and I'm going to put, make the customer number one, then you can't have all of these different divisions and silos. Yeah. I'll give one example. You know, uh, one thing that customers can't stand is if they're irate, the last thing they want to get from your company is the marketing email, right? That just exactly. sends them off to the stratosphere. So do you have a way of even pulling that data back into the company and say, temporarily suspend marketing messages, right? Exactly. Is that even doable? Exactly. So for those of you who are not familiar, and again, as a former CMO, I highly recommend this report. The report focused on B2B sales success requiring a holistic ABM strategy. And for those of you who are not familiar with ABM, it involves targeted efforts to focus marketing campaigns and budgets on a select set of predetermined accounts. But what the report said, what's in these findings was that Constellation Research shows that the integrated account-based strategy, inclusive of marketing, sales, and service, produces much better sales results than just account-based marketing led by marketing alone. So again, when you look at a deteriorating net promoter score or a CSAT score uh, coming in on the service side of the business and you ignore that on the marketing side and you start pushing these offers, you're, you're totally losing trust with the customer yep. because it's the perfect example of demonstrating how the company doesn't, is, is tone deaf to what's happening. <laughs> so, so it's an incredible report, it's a must read. So I appreciate you bringing that up, Cindy, thank you. Oh, thank you, thanks, Fala. I think we found Vala's like massive passion for marketing coming up here today. This is awesome. It's like, this is awesome. That's how we get along. <laughs> this is cool. We're getting riled up on marketing. So the CMO within never leaves. No, um, so hey, marketing trends. Um, we were talking about GDPR earlier, right? Yeah. And this is, I mean, you, you had a stat here as well that was saying 43% of marketers were totally were aware of GDPR, which meant like most of everyone was clueless about GDPR, which is the other yeah. way to look at that. And I thought that was kind of, kind of scary and, and we kind of talked a little bit about this but uh, you've been doing a lot of research here and what do companies need to do to get started on GDPR and and we know it's important but but how can they just even get the beginnings of this right because I think there's a lot of confusion as well 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There is a lot of confusion, which is why it drove me to write this report called the GDPR Guide to Compliance for Marketers. And it really is geared towards all the things that marketers may not be aware that they uh, should, should be understanding of what to do. And so out in the report, I outlined sort of a five-step process and how they can get started. And the first thing is just knowledge is power, awareness of the problem. And actually, I even recommend a lot of CMOs to appoint someone within the marketing team to be responsible for GDPR. You know, it's, it's going in and understanding what is in your database. You know, what do you have in there uh, the, that uh, has, you know, not only customers, right? But if someone actually subscribed to your newsletter and they're in a EEA country, so it's not just EU, it's actually beyond EU. Mm-hmm. That's Liechtenstein, a few other countries, the EEA. Uh, they, you, then you are impacted by it. Or even internal, it's if you have an employee and you're sending out an employee newsletter, HR departments do that all the time. That counts too. So that's where a lot of the awareness doesn't quite exist yet. So I, number one is awareness. Appoint someone uh, within the team to be responsible for it. The second thing I really want to emphasize to CMOs out there and to any heads of marketing is that Within GDPR, it's very clearly outlined, you have 72 hours from when you are aware of a data breach to notify your customers and the public of the breach. So I also recommend in the report to have a data breach protocol and the plan. It's almost like fire safety drills, you know, run through it with the company because who's on the hot seat for doing all the PR of a you know, data breach? That's gonna be the CMO and the communications office. So very much, uh, I even give some recommendations on what to do in a, in a data breach. So Cindy, if I'm a CMO of a company and I realize, oh my goodness, this is 20 million euro or 4% of my revenue if I'm not yeah. compliant, can they come to Constellation and ask for a GDPR readiness? And if so, how long would it take for a GDPR expert to, to, to give an assessment to a company? Yeah, well, there's, um, there's definitely a few things that can happen. There's, uh, I have a great colleague who also wrote a parallax for my report named Steve Wilson. And Steve is in Bala and Ray, you've obviously known him. Steve yeah. is amazing. He is uh, someone that I went to when I was writing the report because, again, keep in mind, mine is geared to marketers. I don't, profess, right, I don't profess to be the security expert or the data privacy expert. But, you know, Steve was very instrumental in helping to understand where some of those gaps are. And then the second thing, which I guess I will do a little bit of a preview, I created this little mini quiz. It's only eight to 10 questions, and it's really geared to marketers. And if you answer these eight to 10 questions, it'll actually tell you how many of these you got right to see if you are even well aware and well versed in some of your responsibilities in GDPR. So I will be making that, uh, I'll have it live uh, probably next, uh, early next week. It's already done, I just need to you know, put the finishing touches on it. And it's just going to be open and available, and we'll have it on the Constellation website. Awesome. Have Ray take the quiz and share his score with me privately. If you don't, mind. <laughs> don't tell anyone. We're trying to get my marketing done ahead of GDPR. I've got to hit yeah. it all my European now before I get fined. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I'll, go, I'll go hijack a survey monkey or constant contact <laughs> and uh, spam the Davos list or something. Um, anyways, actually, you know, I might do that. And so, um, short list. What's going on? we got a bunch of short lists that, that we popped up. And, uh, you know, what, what are you seeing? You've got a bunch of shortlists. Actually, what are your coverage areas on shortlists? Before, before you go yeah. through it, I just want to say I'm so impressed with the dimensions that you look at when you create your shortlist. For example, I looked at the B2B marketing shortlist, uh, ease of use, integration into CRM system, thoughtful lead capture and scoring, identify managed key accounts, ability to run ABM testing, aggregated web traffic, attributes of campaign ROI, and so on and so on. You have like 15 different attributes in order to shortlist vendors. So kudos to you in the thoroughness that you go through when you create these shortlists. Okay, now tell us about the shortlist. <laughs> oh, th- th- thanks so much. Okay, so let me unpack that. All right, so to answer Ray's question, because I think very different for me is I've been on the other side. I was a practitioner. I ran global marketing and sales operations. And so a lot of my research really does look at how do these two kind of work holistically together. But then also because I've been a practitioner, I kind of not only look at it from as an analyst, all the technology and do they check the box, do the vendors check the boxes of doing these features? I really look at 
Is it genuinely usable? Are these are the uh, feature functionalities, you know, kind of uh, in the marketing material? Is that is that just a news fluff, or is that real? That's something tangible that sellers and marketers can utilize. So I personally have six shortlists. I'm working on a seven, but the six shortlists, they cover you know, B2B marketing automation, B2C marketing automation. On the sales side, I have one on configure price quote, which uh, you know, Pros was just on, uh, Pros CEO was just on, and Pros is on the list. I'm also Salesforce and others. Uh, also, I look at sales productivity. If I am a direct sales rep, what are some of the tools out there that help me reduce my administrative time? And then finally, I have one on marketing analytics, which, you know, Bala, you know this as being a former CMO too. The, a lot of CMOs are reflecting to me that the existing uh, marketing intelligence and analytics tools don't really quite fit their needs. You know, they're looking for better attribution results. They're looking for better campaign success metrics. How do I tie that? to my opportunity results and close deals. So I have a separate marketing analytics shortlist as well. But a lot of it is because I look at it from the end user customer lens. You know, what is it that's gonna help them? Awesome, awesome work. And you got seven. Ray, I mean, does Cindy sleep? Does she take vacation? I mean, that's, that's I don't know. Sure. Like balance. <laughs> Everywhere. She's been everywhere. So, you know, hey, when you have this much fun, and, and part of the reason the shortlists are, are kind of cool is that we, we don't put the vendors like, like through these like long, drawn out cycles where we give people an Excel sheet and tell them to return it back to us so that we can kind of make fun of the Excel sheet and then print something six months later or eight months later when it's not valid anymore. So, so that's why kind of we created the shortlist. But, uh, but yeah, the, I don't know if anyone sleeps in my firm. Everyone's up all the time. People do take vacations. People do take vacations. You always see pictures of like, you know, you know, Holger, Cindy, other folks like, you know, where they are. So, so Cindy, who are, your, who are your mentors? Who do you go to, 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 to continue to, you know, educate and inspire so many when it comes to digital marketing and sales effectiveness? Oh, Vala, thanks for that question. You know, I, I feel very fortunate that uh, throughout my career, I've always had great people that were so supportive and always give me advice. And some of them include some former CEOs that I worked for. Um, I'll specifically call out Mark Logan, who uh, was my CEO at Rivermine. And, you know, I, I went with him to um, tours. We got acquired by IBM. I was with him at back office for a while. Uh, and then also Pat Quirk, who used to be our CEO at Tours. You know, I, I've been very fortunate, of course, Ray, you know, some great CEOs that have been my mentors. Um, also yourself, you know, I read a lot of your tweets. I read a lot of your blogs and articles uh, and you, you always give great information, Vala. But then also I encourage everyone watching this too, to um, as they kind of think about building out their mentors, it's um, someone else who's been just really special to me and it's worked really well is uh, one of my former chief human resource uh, officers. You know, I've, I've developed a great relationship with her and she's been giving great career guidance, you know, sort of, hey, here's some things you can look at, some things you should do, you know, here, here's some interesting areas that you, you know, could strengthen in. And if you don't have someone who um, is on the chief people officer, human resources side, go get someone to help mentor you in that area because they can kind of see things that others can't and, and give you great advice. Um, I, I forgot to name of the guest from Disrupt TV just two weeks ago, um, I'll remember the name, but she, she said something that really resonated with me. She said, sometimes companies try to pair you with mentors that are almost, you're, you're two, you're three, four levels away. Right, right, right. And it's not really relevant and applicable. And so I definitely recommend that you try to find mentors that are, that are close to you from a, uh, from a hierarchical standpoint as well. Absolutely, I'm sure Aubrey will get the link to, I, I, I don't recall the name as well, but I exactly remember the yeah. conversation. So we'll send that link to, to our viewers so you have that. Uh, thank you so much, that was great stage advice, thank you. Yeah, we're here with uh, Cindy Zhou, um, our digital marketing and sales effectiveness lead uh, analyst here at Constellation Research. And you can definitely follow her on Twitter at Cindy underscore Z-H-O-U. Thank you so much for being on the show, Cindy. Thank Thanks you so Cindy. much for having me. Thank you. And she's an amazing co-host as well. She has actually co-host Disrupt and uh, done, did an amazing job. I actually had imposter syndrome that I struggled with after Cindy 
co-hosted the show. So I, I think Cindy was talking about Patty Fletcher, if yes. I remember, yes. the author, yes. um, and yes. uh, for her exactly. new book that is coming out this exactly. week. Exactly. So, uh, you so can always count on Ray's photographic memory. Um, <laughs> yeah, speaking of great shows, next week's show is going to be fantastic. Uh, Ray will not be with us. Ray is... Uh, on business next week. So we have Alan Leposky, who's going to be our co-host, and Alan is amazing. Uh, so we will have Bruce uh, Kasanoff, author of I Am, as our, as our first guest. We'll have Deb uh, Mills-Schofield, uh, strategic and innovation consultant, venture capitalist, mentor, advisor, educator. She's amazing. Uh, and then Jim Cathcart, leadership development speaker and author. So a lot of discussions about entrepreneurship, and leadership uh, next week. And I'll be joining you from Disney. So who knows what my background will be next Friday. <laughs> but uh, I want the mouse. I want the mouse. <laughs> no goofy ears, but you might get the mouse. Um, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you for joining us. Ray, closing remarks. Hey, it's been really exciting. Um, I can't believe we're only in mid-February. The market is heating up. A lot of cool activity that's going to be popping up. And if you've got a if you've got a coast, if you've got a founder or CEO or investor that's doing something really interesting, let us know. Uh, we're definitely gonna put them in the show. Aubrey's been scheduling out a month or two out, so it might take some time for you to get onto the show. Uh, but definitely let us know. Tweet at us at Disrupt TV Show, and definitely catch us on the replay. Send us your comments. We always love to hear what you think. Thank you, everyone. See you next Friday. Bye bye. Take care. Mm -hmm.